You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. We are picking up the book of Hosea again this week. We took a week off as Pastor Gary came in here. We're going to look at chapter 5. And so I want to briefly review uh, the first four chapters to get us into the flow of where we're at today. If you remember, the first three chapters of Hosea are about a relationship between Hosea and Gomer. Hosea is a young, virtuous prophet that God tells to marry a promiscuous woman named Gomer. And they do marry, and Gomer proves to be unfaithful to Hosea inside their marriage. They have children together. At least one of those children, from what we read in Scripture, was not Hosea's. She was unfaithful to him. She runs away from their marriage into the arms of other lovers. But despite her adulterous way, Hosea remains faithful to her. He provides generously while she's even living with other men. And in his desire to bring her back, Hosea allows her to pursue fully after the desires of her own heart without his aid, without his mercy, without his provision. And eventually God tells Hosea to go and rescue Gomer. He goes and he buys her. She's in a life of slavery from her prostitution. He buys her back. He takes her away from her circumstances and he vows to live with her and he promises fidelity and faithfulness to her again in exchange for hers. And so the message uh, of God comes through the life of Hosea. It will be a testimony to the whole nation of who God is and who they are. God is like Hosea, and his people are like the unfaithful nation of Israel, or the unfaithful bride of Gomer. Even in their infidelity, God has looked out for them time and time again, but they refuse to turn back to him. They are unfaithful. And so the message in chapters 1 through 3 is an illustration through the life of Hosea. God communicates in Hosea's life, what he will now communicate through the words of Hosea in chapter 4 through 14 towards the nation of Israel. And so starting in chapter 4, we learned of all the ways in which the nation of Israel were unfaithful to God. God lays out this legal case against them and all the ways that the way they had turned away from him despite his mercy, despite his provision, God reveals to us the depths of their unfaithfulness and all the chaos and destruction that has happened in his wake and then all the ways in which God has worked to bring his people back to himself. And so in chapter four, we learn that God's people look to the heavens no more. They no longer sought after God. They no longer acknowledged God. And in chapter 5, that perspective changes. In chapter 5, we come into the heavenly throne room, and we look down on creation. And we're in chapter 4, God's creation no longer sees and acknowledges God. In chapter 5, we look down from heaven, and this is the message that God gives to us. 
you no longer see me, but I see everything about you. I see all that you do, all that you've said, and all that you've done. I know it all, and I've seen it all. And that's where we pick up today. So let me pray, and we'll jump into chapter five. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you would use this day uh, for our joy, our flourishing, that you would use your word to convict our hearts, that you would bring uh, acknowledgement of our sin, acknowledgement of our unfaithfulness, Lord, but that in this, Lord, that we might rejoice in who you are. We might rejoice in what you've done for us. We might rejoice in your love anew. And so, Lord, use this passage to woo us, to convict us, and bring gladness in our hearts. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. So we're going to look primarily at the first seven verses in chapter 5. So chapter 5 in Hosea, verses 1 through 7. Hear this, O priest. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at mitzvah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you've played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for a spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel, of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. And so this is Hosea speaking God's truth to his people And in it, we learn the scale and the depth of the corruption amongst God's people here. God calls everyone out. The priest, the kings, the political rulers of the day. And then we notice he talks about the flocks and the sheep. He's referring to the people. What God is saying is, I see it all. I see every one of you. And I know your deeds and I know your heart. He cites two places in this text. He cites Mitzvah and Mount Tabor. And what is believed to be true about these places is that they were the centers of false worship and debauchery in that day. They were the center of the nations of Israel's devotion to a false god. And in these places, there were, there were uh, pagan worship, there were orgies, there were festivals. And from those places, popular opinion and desire in the culture flowed. And their influence on the people was absolutely devastating. Hosea calls them a, two words, he calls them a snare and a spread net. Those are hunting terms, if you will, that reflect the way that they have entrapped the people of God and all people in that day. The mention of those two places reveals to us that not only does God know us, not only does God know what's going on and who's going and who's doing, but he knows where it's coming from. He knows the origin of all. When I, when I was growing up, I remember in my house, my parents uh, had this shelf and hooks were on the bottom of it and they hung their pots and pans. They had this Revere Well stuff that had 
copper bottoms on it, and I spent a lot of days in my life polishing the bottom of copper pans for some reason. And on top of it were some mugs, and somewhere along the way, whether it was my parents or one of my siblings, uh, one of those all-seeing eyes that were made of yarn, the God's eye, uh, maybe you remember if I put a picture up here, these sort of yarn things ended up into one of those mugs. And here's the thing, I eventually, I learned what that was, and I was terrified. I was terrified of this thing in a mug in my kitchen. Why is God always watching me? And then I thought to myself, why are my parents trying to remind me that God is stalking me? What are they, what are they doing here? And so theologically, this idea of a God's eye or the all-seeing eye is expressed in this term omnipresence, that God is everywhere, but also that God is omniscient, that God is all-knowing. And so our God is everywhere, and he knows everything. And that can be a terrifying thought, can it not? Especially if you're a young kid. Hosea is reminding us here in this text of God's true nature, that he is a God that is everywhere. He's present. He knows all things. He sees all things, and he is in all places. And that is terrifying if we think about it, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Let me put it this way. If you, or I should say, if there was a person that knew everything about you, both public and private, all of your sins, all of the things that you try to hide, all of the things that you've thought but never have spoken, and their response to you wasn't understandable horror, but mercy. That instead of fleeing from you, they actually pursued you. That instead of hating you, they displayed to you a selfless, sacrificial love. That instead of condemnation, you found joy in their faithfulness. Every one of us in this room would jump at the prospect of that kind of relationship. God's omnipresent, omniscient nature is worth our great consideration today, friends. It is not something to be terrified of, although it needs to be rightly accounted in our life. But it reveals to us that God has seen all of what we are and all of what we have done and all of what we have thought. And he has not run the other way. He has not departed from us. He remains faithful. Friends, that is worth your consideration today. The staggering way in which God knows us and is with us and the joy that is available to us simply by knowing that he is steadfast and devoted still. It is far too wonderful for us to even begin to comprehend and so in verse 3, Hosea says through, from God, I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. This word know in verse 3 comes from the Greek term yada. And the word yada implies a deep, intimate relationship, a, a, an intimate relational knowledge of someone. God knows his people like a husband knows his wife, like a wife knows his children. And to the nation of Israel, he knows them the same and he's remained at their side despite themselves. 
The nation benefits from God's presence. They benefit from his provision. They benefit from his favor, from his love, from his grace, from their mercy. All of what they are is because of them. All of what they need is found in him. But like a spoiled brat who feels entitled to their allowance, the nation of Israel has began to worship the hand, the blessing of God, without ever pursuing his face, his presence. They have forgotten him. They enjoy all the benefits that come with his presence and his attributes, but they neglected to worship him himself. Tradition has it that this building, the Taj Mahal, one of the most beautiful buildings in all of the world, was actually designed as a tomb. In 1692, the favorite wife of the Indian ruler, Shah Jahan, died. And he ordered a magnificent tomb to be built as a memorial to her. He called it the Taj Mahal. And the Shah placed his wife's casket in the middle of the parcel of land, and then he began to construct the temple around the casket. And years went by. And eventually his grief was lessened, but his passion for the project increased. And so one day while he was surveying in the land, he reportedly stumbled over an old wooden box. And in his stumbling, he had some of his workers take it and throw it away. It was only months later that they realized that what he had done was actually throw away the casket of his departed wife. The original purpose for the memorial became lost in the details of its construction. And that has become the nature of the nation of Israel. And if we are not careful, it will become the nature of ourselves. Hosea says the pride of Israel testifies to their face. They have forsaken God. With pride in their hearts, they have justified themselves that they must be pretty special. They are proud about the pride they have in themselves. And you can see it on their faces. Isn't that the nature of humanity? Isn't that the nature of ourselves? That when things go well, when things are successful, we are quick to directly associate ourselves with how capable and good and smart and wise we are. Yet when life goes astray, it's very often that we put the blame on God himself. The nation of Israel was so prideful that they actually came to believe that they could love God, they could belong to God, but also worship multiple false gods. They wanted all the provisions and blessings of the hand of God, but at the same time, they wanted the popular musings and flavors of the day. They were adulterous, but they believed that there was some way that they could do just enough to remain in good standing with God, but also get everything that they wanted in life. And it played out so thoroughly that it became an obsession to them. Hosea says that their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. They have become so lustful in their all-encompassing pursuits that they have actually given themselves over to it. They have allowed the influence of demonic forces in that area, in that day, and in the world to cooperate with our rebellious 
flesh. And it has led them to be self-absorbed, indulgent, arrogant, and self-sufficient. And the tragedy of all of that is when one walks in that sort of lifestyle for too long, it becomes ingrained. It becomes the source of their life. They don't return to God because they are so convinced that they are right, so in love with themselves. You know, one of the tragic things that I keep reading in this horrific war in the Ukraine is the way in which people in Russia have been deceived. There are many people in Russia who believe that the war is just because they think the Russians are going into the Ukraine to eliminate a neo-Nazi government that exists. Little do they know that the president of Ukraine himself is actually Jewish. Friends, it doesn't take us long to believe the wrong thing. It doesn't take us long with the wrong motivation and the wrong knowledge to begin to believe the wrong things about our life and to believe that life is something that it's not. So look, King David reminds us of a glorious and wonderful truth a desperate need for our hearts to be introspective in front of God. In Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24, David says this, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. All of us, must acknowledge for our own good that there is a streak of rebellion that runs in the hearts of every man, woman, and child, that there is an inclination in our lives towards pride and selfishness, and that there are forces in this world that are evil and corrupt, that instead of throwing our anxious thoughts into the world to find vindication and affirmation, they get all too ingrained in the postures of our life. Let us Give those anxious thoughts to the Lord that he might know them, that he would see them, that we would acknowledge all of what we are not in front of the one who is all that we could ever want. And in it, we find immense joy and satisfaction of who he is. Consider a good parent. Consider a good parent who reflects to their children the folly and the selfishness of their own heart. Yet, with steadfast love and truth, they guide them away from the innate disposition of their hearts towards selfishness, towards obedience and selflessness. They become a source of joy for their children. The hedges that they put around them are for their protection. The boundaries that they put in their lives are for their flourishing. And in the same way, God does with us. We give all of our anxious thoughts to the Lord. We allow him to search our hearts for all the ways in which we get off kilter and make this life about the wrong things. You know, children are actually part of the heartbreaking story here in Hosea because the people have been so ingrained with pride, so adulterous in their way, they have passed that pride and self-indulgence onto their children. Hosea talks about alien children. And as much as we would like to interpret it, that was a spaceship flying down and there's alien children here, that's not what that means. 
they are children that don't know the one true God of Israel. They've been led astray from their parents, in their, by their parents. In their waywardness, God has allowed them to walk away. And in doing so, he is no longer available to them. Remember, God didn't turn his back on his people. They did. He's simply acknowledging the situation. They don't want him. They want his hand. They want his blessing. They don't want his presence. They don't want his face. And so he's removing from them, himself from them completely for their own good. We'll learn that later. Hosea says they seek him, but they don't find him. They seek him, but they don't find him. And that might feel a bit cold or odd considering some of the verses that we memorize in our days of youth. That If we seek him, we will find him, as the prophet Jeremiah 29 says. Does God want his people just to seek him? Does he want to create churches of just seekers? Well, the truth is, is that all of us by nature are seekers. You are by nature dissatisfied from within. We by nature know that we don't know how to live this life. We by nature seek things outside of ourselves because of the lacking in ourselves. God isn't creating and rewarding the seeker, no, No, gloriously, Jeremiah has a caveat to that seeking. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. All of your heart. All of your heart. First. God doesn't want our half-hearted pursuits. He wants all of us. Because we were made to worship him. We were made to love him. And in that love... In worship, we flourish. Like the Taj Mahal, we were designed to live with Christ at the center of our lives. And if he is not there, we are simply walking around as hopeless, empty tombs. Hosea says the nation has dealt with him faithlessly. They have treated him like a consumer does, flowing in and out of his presence as they need it. Friend, God wants fidelity. He wants loyalty. He wants devotion. And listen, not because he needs it, but because you do. You need it. And we are reminded in chapter four and five in Hosea that infidelity creates rot in our lives, rot in our lives and devastation to our world. He will allow a slow rottenness to develop in our lives permeating itself deeper and deeper in our lives. In chapter four, he says that because of Israel's half-hearted pursuits and seeking after all that they want and trying to think that they could please God, all who dwell in the land languish. There is a languishing, a rottenness to a life without God, without the pursuit of his presence and his face. But what is scarier than that is without our God, Without him at the center, the world comes at us not as a slow decay of rottenness, but like a lion. And Hosea in chapter 5 says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. God is describing their all-too-soon reality The Assyrians are coming in less than 20 years, and they will absolutely wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel without 
mercy. Because they no longer seek God, they deal faithlessly with God, God will remove himself and his provision and his love, and they will feel the full brunt of the devastation of the world. And the world will not deal with them as graciously as the Lord has, nor us. The principles for us to consider today are are twofold. One is this, in knowing God's omnipresent and omniscient nature, we must be keen to remember that there isn't anything that is hidden from God. Not our actions, not our deeds, not our thought. God knows them all. When we choose to hide them from God as if we could, when we leave them unconfessed, when we leave them unforgiven, we are actually confessing something else, primarily that we don't trust him, that we don't believe he is graceful, that we fear man more than we fear God, that we don't believe in his loving kindness and mercy. The more we hide, the more we box ourselves off to God, the more we reject God, and the more that disposition becomes ingrained in our life, and we too, friends, become like the nation of Israel. The confessions of our failures, of our weakness, of our sins, don't cause God to distance himself from us. But in them, our God draws near to us because it is in our weakness that we are made strong. To look at ourselves in the mirror every night, knowing that we are fully known by God and fully delighted in is amazing. To be fully known and fully delighted in is the joy of our hearts. Secondly, in knowing God's omniscient and omnipresent nature, we know that there isn't a corner of our hearts, a destination in the world, a mountaintop or a seabed where God's presence is not known. We seek him with all of our hearts because he's the only one that can be found in every place, in every posture, in every struggle, in every joy, in every hardship. He is everywhere and available to us always. To not seek him with all of our hearts goes fundamentally against our design. There is nowhere that God cannot be found, nowhere that he cannot be known, nowhere that he can't become Lord of our lives, and nothing he cannot redeem. And so let's take this posture of seeking confession into our time of communion, where we celebrate God's love for us, that he has given us his son, that we might come to live through him, to enjoy his peace through our faith by his grace, that we would actually come and die to live for Christ and through Christ. And so it is because of the risen Christ that we join here together today as a community of broken but hopeful believers who seek to love what he loved, to live what he taught, to strive to be faithful servants in this, our time and place. And so in this meal, we remember Jesus We remember his promises, the price that he paid for us, who he was, what he said, what he did. On the night before Jesus died, he took a loaf of bread, he gave thanks to it, and he broke it, and he said this, take and eat. And whenever you do this, remember me. After supper, Jesus took the cup and he poured it out saying, this is the new covenant, remember me. 
And so today we do remember him. We remember his life, his love, his friendships, his teaching, his dying, his rising again. And in this shared meal today, we proclaim a shared faith. And our proclamation is this, that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Will you say that with me? Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. The body of Christ, the bread of life represented in the cracker. The lifeblood of Christ, the cup of blessing represented in the juice. These are the gifts of God's people, uh, the gifts of God for God's people. And we are thankful for those gifts. And so if you're in this room today and you have professed faith in Jesus, we invite you to join us at the table. If you're here today and you have not made a decision to follow Jesus, we love that you're here. But no, this is for the family of God. Parents, it's your decision on when your kids are ready for communion. We take that responsibility as moms and dads very intently and greatly. And so we're gonna spend a few moments here exploring our hearts, asking forgiveness, hallowing the name of God. And when you're ready, partake in the emblems. But in the process, seek God and forgiveness. Explore your heart. Give your anxious thoughts to him that he may be known in your life. And when you're ready, eat and drink.